Now, as we continue on in our investigation here of Bovink, and now we turn to Van Til. Van Til adds something to what Bovink is saying in that he wants us to be fearlessly anthropomorphic. Fearlessly anthropomorphic. Now, you can already understand, I think, uh, what he's after. And I want to connect it to Bovink as I'm going into this. Remember, Bovink is saying that God remains eternal as he enters into every lockstep movement in history. God remains omnipresent, not spatial, as he inhabits every crevice of created space fully. He remains immutable as he enters into relations with mutable creatures. And in those relations, there's not a sign of becoming or a speck of space or a moment of time in God in his relation to creation. So the idea of intermediate properties, some third thing between God and the creature, that's gone forever. That concept is precisely what Van Til means by fearless anthropomorphism. God is even more present in space and time, if you can conceive it, than the creature and is active and living in his relation, yet he remains self-contained. He does not lose himself in giving himself. Now, Van Til, following Bovink's guideline, that the Bible's teaching as a whole, including its theology of anthropomorphism, uh, prohibits ascribing change to God, advocated what he termed fearless anthropomorphism. So being fearlessly anthropomorphic, that is Van Til's language to sum up everything that we've just seen in Bavink. If you're asking the question, what is the constructive reformed backdrop for Van Til's doctrine of fearless anthropomorphism? We just covered it in Bavink. But listen to what he says about fearless anthropomorphism in various places. These are taken primarily from pages 94, 93, and 73 of Common Grace in the Gospel. He says, we shall not fear to be boldly anthropomorphic because, to begin with, we have in our doctrines of the ontological trinity and temporal creation cut ourselves loose once and for all from correlativism between God and man. And so this fearless anthropomorphism, citation one, cut loose from correlativism. What is correlativism? Well, we've already defined it. It's Dorner. The idea that God changes in his mode of being into the mode of the creature so that there can be a reciprocal relation of mutual change. Ventil says, secondly, again, a fearless anthropomorphism based on the doctrine of the ontological trinity, rather than abstract reasoning on the basis of metaphysical and epistemological correlativism, should control our concepts along the line. So on the, the second one, he says um, the relationship here, uh, the ontological trinity, pace correlativism. So it's, we're cut loose from correlativism by what? By the ontological trinity as our interpretive concept everywhere. So if we affirm an ontological trinity in God's self-revelation so that there's no change 
in the ontological trinity when God reveals himself, Van Til says we have cut ourselves loose once and for all from correlativism. Final quote. He said we need, at this point, to be fearlessly anthropomorphic. Now, just to do uh, our due diligence here, in his 1955 work, The Defense of the Faith, Van Til makes explicit what he means by correlativism. He argued that his doctrine of God has been, quote, self-consciously set in opposition to all forms of non-Christian thought which compromise or deny the self-contained character of God by thinking of him as correlative to the universe. Correlativism teaches either that God changes in his relation to creation or that he is in some way determined by his relation to creation. If he changes, he's mutable. If he's determined, he's passable. Van Til maintained against all forms of correlativism, quote, we speak of the immutability of God. Naturally, God does not and cannot change since there's nothing besides his own being on which he depends. The attributes of God are not to be thought of otherwise than aspects of the one simple original being The attributes of God are not characteristics that he has developed gradually. They are fundamental to his being. Those are quotations taken from the original uh, Defense of the Faith, variously interspersed from pages 25 to 38. And then Van Til says, No one of the persons of the Trinity can be said to be correlative in its being to anything beyond the Godhead. Boy, does that set up against Dorner. There is no correlative mode of existence for the Son. There is no correlative mode of existence for the Father or the Spirit in relation to creation. In Van Til's theology of God's relation to the world, fearless anthropomorphism is his language to deny all forms of correlativism. Now, as, Van, as Bavink insisted, there's no intermediate category between the immutable triune creator and the mutable creature. Van Til said something that I'll need to explain to you because it might not intuitively flow. He says there are two categories in the creator-creature relation. A, the ontological trinity. and B, the creature. There's the ontological trinity, and there's the creature. Or, in his language, the temporal creation. That's from the quote earlier on correlativism. Now, when Van Til speaks that way, he is not denying the presence of an economic trinity. He's not denying that there's a distinction between the eternal processions of God that do not fall in time and the missions of God that do fall in time in the works of creation and covenant and incarnation. So what is he doing? He, 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 he clearly, um, uh, if you're interested in this, on page 32 of the Introduction to Systematic Theology, he clearly makes the distinction between ontological and economic aspects of the Trinity. Uh, IST 32 and other places. But what does he mean when he says that we have 
two categories, ontological trinity and temporal creation. He's wanting to make the point Bavink made about nothing intermediate between the ontological trinity as he relates to the temporal creation. His point is that the economic trinity, please hear this, is not something or someone other than the ontological trinity. It's not a new set of persons or the same persons with new attributes. It's not the same persons in a new temporal historical contingent mode of existence. It's not the betetagung that changes, as Dorner said. Rather, the economic trinity for Van Til is the same ontological trinity in a new relation. The economic trinity is the immutable triune God in his freely determined relation to creation. That's Van Til saying what Bavink said, that there's nothing intermediate between the immutable triune God and the creature. And that is what Van Til is getting at when he talks about being fearlessly anthropomorphic. The economic works of the ontological trinity, and by economic works, I mean those works that fall in space and time, creation, covenant, incarnation. The economic works of the ontological trinity are rendered in the idiom of temporal creation. That is anthropomorphic language. And as Bavik insisted that anthropomorphic language prohibits ascribing change to God, so Van Til correspondingly urges that anthropomorphic language prohibits any form of correlativism between God and man. Their concerns are identical. Do you see that? In fact, we could say something like this. Anthropomorphic language is anti-correlativist at core. Anthropomorphic language is anti-correlativist at core for Van Til. It's simply his way of saying it prohibits ascribing change to the self-contained ontological trinity in his relation to creatures. Van Til, in his Introduction to Systematic Theology, cites from Bavink's discussion in Reformed Dogmatics Thank you for your patience in waiting for Dorner. Here we are. Re he cites from Bavink regarding God's immutability in his relation to creation and Scripture's use of anthropomorphism. So bringing everything together now, Van Til citing Bavink is going to synthetically apply all that we've built in the past lectures to Dorner. He says, quote, Bavink points out uh, this is Van Til from 2.11 of the Intro to Systematic Theology. Bavink points out that the immutability of God has had its enemies. These enemies have been found among those whose thinking has been informed by pagan philosophy, such as that of Heraclitus. Dorner, for instance, sought to harmonize the unchangeability of God with the fact of his active concern for the things of the universe by saying God is immutable merely in the ethical aspect of his being. We've, got, we've surveyed this already. God is always love and always holy. On the other hand, God changed when he actually created the world and when in the person of the Son he became flesh. 
Pavic insists, and rightly so, that all these efforts are foredoomed to failure. The scriptures speak anthropomorphically of God and could not do otherwise, but for all that, God in himself is immutable. There is change round about him, change in the relation of things to him, but no change in God himself. Van Til invokes the two out of three clause. Change in the creature, change in the relation, no change in God in the relation. God himself does not change in the relation, even though the relation changes and the creature changes. But see, Dorner's view, advocated in varying forms by classical modernists and contemporary evangelical biblicists, insists that God changed when he created the world and when, in the person of his son, he became flesh. There are some contemporary theologians who want to project the mutable humanity of Jesus back onto God in his works of decree and creation. Bovink insists that such views are foredoomed to failure because of a fundamental misunderstanding of God, his revelation, and anthropomorphic language. When God relates to the creature, the relation changes, the creature changes, there's no change in God. Van Til is citing Bovink and aiming at Dorner, and he is saying that God does not change in the new relation to creation, and anthropomorphic language cannot be leveraged to suggest any form of correlativism and change in God. So the irony here is that by being fearlessly anthropomorphic, we're affirming fearlessly the absolute immutability of God in his freely determined relation to creation, in his revelation in his disclosure to the creature, as he enters into space and time, he remains immutable, even though all of these relations, these pluriform relations, reveal him in the changing language and concepts borrowed from creation. Now, here's, here's something we need to appreciate. Van Til when he speaks about fearless anthropomorphism, and he talks about affirming that language and using that language fearlessly. He has a quote uh, from uh, the original. Uh, I, I strongly encourage you to just read the original, get to the primary sources, understand Van Til in his own context uh, and grasp him. But in, in Van Til's Common Grace of the Gospel, page 73, unedited, uh, he says this, he says, we are entitled and compelled to use anthropomorphism not apologetically, but fearlessly. We need not fear to say that God's attitude has changed with respect to mankind. We know well enough that God himself is changeless. But we hold that we are able to affirm that our words have meaning for no other reason than we use them analogically. Now, what is he saying? Well, let me put it this way. When he says we speak of God's attitude changing with respect to mankind, he's already given us the formula by which we understand such language. The creature changes, the relation changes, but God remains immutable. It's not an analogical understanding of anthropomorphic language to ascribe change 
to God himself. That would be univocal language. But here's the question. What does Van Til have in view with regard to this quotation that God's attitude has changed with respect to mankind? What is he bringing into view? Well, um, in order to make that clear, I'm going to erase here the uh, threefold discussion he had. I'm going to draw something over here, and I want to talk about Adam in the estate of innocency, Westminster Confession 9-2, and Adam in the estate of sin and misery, Westminster Confession 9-3, or to put it biblically, Adam before the fall, Genesis 2, um, we'll say 7 through, oh, just to take it all the way to 24, and then in the estate of sin and misery, Genesis 3, 1 through 10, even though recognizing he doesn't fall until uh, he eats from the forbidden fruit later in that section. Now, what happens, pace Karl Barth, pace all forms of modernists who deny the historical Adam, what happened when Adam ate from the forbidden fruit? Well, what you have to recognize is there is a lockstep historical before and after when it comes to Adam in his two estates. Adam pre-fall was the benefited from the favor of God. God favored him in creation and in covenant. There was benevolent favor. After the fall, Romans 1.18 says, what was revealed from heaven in Adam's first transgression? Wrath. There is, please understand this, there is an historical before and after where before the fall, Adam relates to the immutable and good triune God in favor. After the fall, he relates to the immutable and good triune God in wrath. There is a transition from favor to wrath, given Adam's sin. And that wrath of God emerged by way of both general and special revelation. Romans 1.18 says the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all who suppress his truth and unrighteousness. In Genesis 3, 8, and 9, you remember, uh, no sooner did Adam sin than he realized he was naked and unashamed, and God summoned Adam and Eve to himself along with the serpent to give a word of judgment to the serpent and a word of promise and salvation to our first parents. But here's the key. Now, please hear this. And remember the, 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 the change with regard to the creature, the change in the relation, no change in God um, construction. But listen, the wrath of God was not revealed from heaven before Adam's sin. There was a time in history where God's wrath was not revealed from heaven. 
When Adam sinned against God, ate from the forbidden fruit, wrath was revealed. And so there is a lockstep movement of change, a historical before and after, from favor to wrath. The creature changes. See, the creature changes and the relation changes. Do you see that? The creature changes, Adam sins, and for your catechetical uh, aid, he became guilty of his first sin, he lost original righteousness, and his whole nature was corrupted, which we commonly call original sin. The creature changed, Adam changed, and there was a change in relation, a change from favor to wrath. In Adam's pre-fall estate of innocency, God related to him in favor. In his post-fall estate of sin and misery, God related to him in wrath. And then in the dawning, uh, I could put one more category here, in the dawning of the uh, Genesis 3.14, God relates to him in redemptive grace. And so that third estate is introduced after the fall. And so you could even say you go from pre-fall favor to post-fall wrath to redemptive grace but I'm out of room on the board. It would be Genesis uh, 3, 14 through 15, and then we could run it all the way to glory. We could do the fourfold estate. But here's the point. The creature changes and the relation changes. So, here's the question Van Til is wrestling with in Fearless Anthropomorphism. How do we understand that historical transition in light of the creator-creature relation? How do we understand that historical transition in light of that creator-creature relation? Well, let me say first what is not the case and what is the case. For Bavink and for Van Til, and this is critical, underscore this in your notes if you are taking them. The wrath of God, here, post-fall wrath, is not the metaphysical emergence of new properties in God. That is a thesis that marks all mutualists and correlativists. They see the wrath of God as a new property, and therefore they say God is not simple but composite. He takes new properties. They say he's not immutable but mutable because he changes and becomes wrathful. Uh, they say that the movement and change of the creature and the relation demands change in God. What is wrath? A new metaphysical property that emerges in God, a property he did not have prior to the fall, but generates or acquires after the fall. Van Til is explicit in defense of the faith, I just quoted it earlier, that God's properties do not change and he doesn't take new ones in time, either in creation, where he manifests his goodness as the creator, or in wrath, when he shows forth his holiness and the way he judges sinners. These are not new attributes, new metaphysical attributes that God takes to himself. And Bavink says there's nothing intermediate between the creator and the creature. So the wrath of God is a revelation in history that does not involve or necessitate or entail any metaphysical change in God by way of subtraction or addition. The wrath of God is not a transformation, a change, or an addition to God's attributes. That is what, from Augustine at least, through Van Til, 
the Augustinian and Reformed tradition has maintained vigilantly and militantly. So how do we express this positively? Well, Adam changed in his relation to God. The relation between Adam and God changed. But God himself remained the same. To put this in the way that the Reformed tradition put it in Bavink, the relative attributes of God are not properties added to God in relation to creation or sin. And Bavink is so helpful on this one. Listen to this. He says, according to Scripture, God is the sum total of all perfections, metaphysical goodness. The goodness of God manifests itself in various forms depending on the objects toward which it is directed. The goodness of God when shown to those in misery is called mercy. The goodness of God which spares those who are deserving of punishment is called forbearance or patience. God's goodness is much more glorious when shown to those who deserve wrath and are evil. Bears the name grace when shown to them. In addition, the goodness of God appears as love when it not only conveys certain benefits, but God himself. For all the attributes are equally God's being. In him, there is no higher or lower, no greater and smaller. That is from Reformed Dogmatics 2, 2, 11 through 15. God's wrath does not require or entail any metaphysical change of God. The wrath of God is the immutably simple and good triune God in relation to sinners. But neither God as the good creator or wrathful judge entails any kind of property that emerges in God's pluriform relation to creatures. You could run into an infinite regress here. For every new relation, God needs a new property. And the pluriform relations would entail multiple, perhaps infinitely new properties added to God in his manifold relations. And so, what does it mean then to affirm fearless anthropomorphism in God's condescension and revelation and his acts that fall in space and time? Well, Van Til says this, and this is very helpful. Uh, I'll summarize it uh, up front. He says, the self-contained ontological trinity alone gives our language in the moment of history its meaning. See, let me, let me frame this before I give you the quotes. Time and space is a created replica of the infinite, eternal, and unchanging life of the triune God. His life that is self-contained, living, and immutable as a trinity, is the archetype after which all space-time categories are patterned, which they reflect by way of analogy. And so, in the nature of the case, it is that archetypal life, self-contained and immutable, that gives meaning to the space-time movements, to the lockstep transitions in time and the, and the 
uh, the meaning of spaces in the created realm and the language that's used to describe God. It is God who gives those things meaning. Listen to what Van Til says. We have as Christians a distinct philosophy of history. This is from his intro to Systematic Theology 2.11. All that has happened in the past, all that happens in the present, and all that will happen in the future rests for its presupposition upon the self-sufficient internal activity of the self-predicating and therefore non-delimited being of God. The movements of history are not determinative of the self-sufficient activity of God. When God created the world by the determination of his will, there was no change in himself. When the second person of the Trinity became incarnate, there was no change in God. God gave the world existence alongside himself. He could do so just because he is the self-contained infinite being. Thus, the doctrine of the infinity of God, far from leading to pantheism, is the best possible safeguard against it. Any attempt to safeguard the doctrine of God against pantheism by subtracting from the self-contained activity, internal activity of God, is foredoomed to failure. That's his commentary on Dorner, Bart, and all forms of mutualism. He's amplifying what we found him quoting from in Bavink. Second quote, The significance of our discussion of fact, law, and reason for the construction of a Christian philosophy of history may now be pointed out explicitly. The philosophy of history inquires into the meaning of history. To use a phrase of Kierkegaard, we may ask how the moment is to have significance. Our claim as believers is that the moment cannot be intelligently shown to have any significance except upon the presupposition of the biblical doctrine of the Trinity. So unless God continues to have non-delimited being in relation to creation, so that the movements of history are not determinative of his self-sufficient activity, We cannot find any significance in the moment that we inhabit. Do you see the point? The point is that the existence and revelation of the triune God is the condition for the possibility of meaning in space and time. Because that space and time is a created replica of the infinite fullness of God's non-delimited being and self-sufficient activity. Now, let me just end by saying this. I want to make a word of uh, comment about Van Til's doctrine of revelation, setting the immutable activity of the Trinitarian God over against these modern substitutes, Dorner, Bart, and others. The point before us is not a reified academic issue. I've hinted at this, but I want to make this explicit. Bavink and Van Til's theological formulations set forth the God that the church worships and serves. Believers worship a self-contained, living, and immutable triune God in union with Christ, who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Hebrews 13.8. The sheep hear no other voice speaking in Scripture but the voice of the triune God in Christ to worship a deity, becoming in time and restricted in knowledge 
is to worship an idol that will not deliver from sin, but will deliver into the abyss, into hell. An idol cannot save himself or others. If God changed in his covenantal relation to creation, Malachi 3.6 says, Christian hope cannot abide. We would be consumed. True religion shuns as poison a mutable and ignorant God, but glories in the revelation of the immutable Trinity in Christ. Gerhardus Voss, who was the favorite professor for Cornelius Van Til during his time at Princeton Theological Seminary, reminds us of how vital God's immutability in his condescension to the church is, how it bears on true religion. Listen to what he says. He says, uh, this is his inaugural address, let us not forget that as of all theology, so biblical theology, the highest aim cannot lie in man or anything that serves the creature. Its most excellent practical use is surely this, that it grants us a new vision of the glory of him who has made all things to the praise of his own wonderful name. As the uncreated, the unchangeable, eternal God, he lives above the sphere of history. He is the being and never the becoming one. And no doubt, when once this veil of time shall be drawn aside, when we shall see face to face, then also the necessity for viewing his knowledge in the glass of history will cease. But since on our behalf and for our salvation, he has condescended to work and speak in the form of time, and thus make his works and his speech partake of that peculiar glory that attaches to all organic growth, let us know him as the one that is that was and is to come, in order that no note may be lacking, that psalm of praise to be sung by the church into which all our theology must issue. Locating the mystery of God's acting and relating to creatures while he remains uncreated, unchangeable, and eternal, that is the chorus of worship that is sung in the church. This God, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy, says to his covenant people in Isaiah 57, 15, a wonderful sermon of Vosses uh, that he expounds, I dwell in a high and holy place, and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and to refresh the heart of the contrite. It is this living and immutable triune God who in his covenantal condescension said to Moses, I am who I am. And in the person of Jesus Christ says, I am the Alpha and the Omega who was, who is, who is to come, the Almighty. It is this living and true God, not a mutable idol, whom the church worships in his self-revelation in Jesus Christ, our Lord. And so as we step back and think about Van Til's doctrine of revelation, viewed from the divine side, he self-consciously sets 
a fearless anthropomorphism cut loose from all correlativism, featuring only the ontological trinity and the creature in this relation marked by condescension. He presents that as our interpretive concept everywhere and sets it self-consciously over against the errors of Dorner, Bart, and now all in the 21st century who bear their image. And that is the image of those who worship a mutable, changeable, finite, developing God who partakes of the same mode of becoming that is found in the creature. It's a different religion. And uh, Bavink and Van Til lead us to the revelation of the living and true God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. As we move forward, we're going to take time to move from the divine side with which we've begun and focus in on the two lines of revelation that we're going to call natural or general and supernatural or special when we talk about the one grand scheme of God's self-revelation to Adam in the garden and its implications for revelation moving forward through redemptive history.